Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to a new Redefining Technology podcast. Standing on two feet, having dexterous hands, developing a language that allows us to communicate, and the ability to understand abstract concepts. These are all part of the equation of humanity. Still, it is the capacity to create tools and advance the technology that has allowed us to thrive on this planet and maybe on others. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. Sean, how are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I might have to go to the doctor, you know, drive, yeah. get yes. there, wait. The pay those yeah. uh, great uh, gas prices. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that alone. Uh, you know, I wish there was another way. It's too expensive to go to the doctor. I have to pay for that gas. Yeah. And, and the time that you spend to go there and, and then what I go there and it's going to tell me hey good to take a test and uh, it's not going to do it right there so then I have to drive somewhere else and so forth so wish there was something better Sean I wish there was and uh, I think that's where technology comes in Marco yes this is re- redefining technology and uh, technology is going to save the world it's going to save our health going to save the health system so we can get better care well, you're being very optimistic, but I, uh, I want to be with you this time. I'm not going to go dystopian on this one. Right. I'm going to be, I'm going to be positive. So, to well, telehealth is that telehealth. the solution? Telehealth is the solution, and and I think there's there's certainly a lot of promise there, but I'm not certain we've achieved exactly what we wanted with that. And maybe the question is who wanted it <laughs> when, what did they want um, out of it? Uh, and thankfully we have two, two gentlemen that are joining us to help answer some of this uh, question around technology and telehealth specifically and its role in providing healthcare. And is it, uh, is it doing what we want to, what we, what we need it to. And uh, we have Dr. Robert Pearl on again. He was on the show uh, a while back and uh, Brian Whaling is joining us as well. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being part of this conversation today. Our pleasure. Yep, absolutely. Before we get into the, the article that triggered this and the conversation that uh, will ensue, uh, perhaps a, a few words from each of you to kind of give a background of who, you're all, who you are, what you're up to, and 
why technology and, and healthcare is important to you. And then we'll, we'll get into telehealth and, and the broader conversation. And Brian, I'm new to the show. I'm going to start with you. Well, thank you. So I'm Brian Whaling. I'm an, an executive director with uh, telehealth services at Intermountain Healthcare. Um, Intermountain Healthcare is based in Utah and we're a 33 um, hospital system that's a not-for-profit community-based healthcare. And I mentioned that because telehealth has played a large part in our growth and us providing access to our um, population across a very rural area. Um, when you think of the desert and the, grant, um, the national parks, um, you, you can think of Utah and Montana, et cetera. And so that's where telehealth comes in. And the technology to enable that has become much better, faster and cheaper and now it, it provides us with an opportunity to improve efficiency of delivering care wherever people live um, and to enable their, um, their ability to receive great health care. Love it. And I'm excited to dig into that. Uh, access clearly is a, a big driver behind that. Uh, Dr. Pearl, a few words about what you've been up to, maybe maybe an update since the last time we spoke would be good as well. Sure. Well, for listeners who may not have been on the last show, I'm a surgeon. I operate in kids, kids with cleft lip and cleft palate. <clears throat> For 18 years, I was the CEO in Kaiser Permanente. And now I consult, I speak, I teach at the Stanford Graduate Schools of Business and Medicine. I have my own podcast, Fixing Healthcare. A lot of stuff on my homepage, robertperlmd.com. And when I look at every other industry, what technology has allowed it to accomplish is to raise quality and lower cost. Medicine hasn't done that. If you look at the past 20 years, technology has simply increased cost, not lowered it, and life expectancy is no better than it was two decades ago. But I'm a big believer it offers tremendous opportunity. In fact, I think it's the only set of solutions to the American healthcare system today that is twice as expensive as any other country in the world, and it lags the 12 other most industrialized nations in quality outcomes, life expectancy, childhood mortality, maternal mortality, which is at the bottom of the list. And uh, I want to see the opportunities grasped and embraced and see American medicine become, once again, the best in the world. Fantastic. I'm really, really looking forward to this conversation that took the inspiration from an article on the Harvard Business Review titled The Telehealth Era is Just Beginning. And I want to start from the beginning of that article where it starts with a paragraph that it talks about the perception of telehealth to be the second best option when the option to go see the doctor in person is not available. And I'm pretty sure that is a misconception. So let, let's start with that one. Is that, is that what is happening right now? Is that why it's not used as widely as it could? Uh, Dr. Perl, let's start with you. Absolutely, it's a misperception. And it's a misperception, I think, in two ways. First, simply in terms of the doctor-patient interaction. Now, seven years ago, I wrote a piece in Health Affairs where I was talking about the fact that at the time we were doing 10 million virtual visits a year and predicted that in the near future, 30%, 40% of what doctors do in the office would be done virtually. And I waited, waited, and waited. And then all of a sudden, COVID came along. 
And what had been low single-digit utilization jumped to 50, 60, 70%, depending upon the practice you looked at. But now if you look, we're back down close to around 10% if you exclude mental health services. You know, across the whole pandemic, care was faster using telemedicine. There was no evidence of quality deterioration. In fact, I think quality goes up because you take care of problems sooner. It's much better for the patient. It should be less expensive. So we have to ask ourselves, why is telemedicine not being adequately utilized in place of forcing patients to come see the doctor in person for those problems, the 30 to 40% of problems that can be very effectively done virtually. But I want to add a second piece and why Brian and I wrote the piece. We wrote it because thinking about telemedicine as only the one doctor and the one patient is a very narrow view of that. There are opportunities that can be created to transform the entire healthcare system and telemedicine is the vehicle to do it. It eliminates distance and time, two major problems for patients and physicians, or physicians providing care to patients and patients receiving care from doctors. And Brian, I want to get your thoughts on this as well, because the, I mean, you mentioned access to doctors and remote access, so perhaps getting access when you wouldn't have it or in, in a way that's more feasible. And I'm just wondering, are we, is that the right bar or measurement to lean on or are we missing what, what's really here? Cause I mean, just the fact that I can have a conversation with a doctor remotely versus going in, does, does that really make it better? No, it doesn't. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm not a physician by background been in healthcare for a long time, but the access is a starting point to, for patients and individuals to start thinking about the care that they might need. And it, it provides a faster entryway for that possible need of seeing somebody in person. Um, and I think that's our, I'm fully in accordance with uh, Dr. Pearl here that um, what's behind it, the technology is an enablement process, but what's most importantly is that the quality of care and the workflows align to whether it's in person or, or um, online. And so as we start reaching out and getting more engagement and have more confidence in, in using technology, we, we also need to make sure that prescribing rates, um, the workflows, the testing, all of that done is, is done appropriately for patient care and safety. Um, and ultimately, though, it, it does allow patients to receive better, faster care that otherwise they might have just ignored. So, Dr. Pearl, the, it's more than access. And, and Brian, my ears perked up when he, when he used the word workflow. I mean, I'm a, I'm a geek by heart. So anything that says here are the steps and the process and how things connect and the data that makes it all happen, I, I get very excited. I, I don't know. I have some idea, but I don't know really where we sit with respect to a national healthcare workflow system, or maybe even regional, if we wanted to, wanted to start there, that, that supports better care through telemedicine. Because um, that, that workflow, I mean, seeing one doctor and having an issue identified and resolved through that one meeting is one thing, but multiple visits across multiple doctors and specialists and tests and a bunch of data and and bringing all of that together in a way that says here's what's going on here are the steps to to take care of it 
uh, is a very different situation, right? And if, if it's between states outside of regions and hospital systems, it, it becomes even more complex. So maybe your thoughts on that. There are definitely problems with the system of medicine, uh, arcane rules about you know, pay, two doctors could be a mile apart across a state line and a patient taking, being taken care of by one doctor can't be taken care of by the other. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense given what we know today. But rather than focusing on that, I wanna look at some of the opportunities. I was in New York City speaking last week to a bunch of CEOs. Now, these people have great healthcare. And I said to them, it's 10 o'clock at night. Your uh, four-year-old has 103 fever. You're not sure whether to bring him to the ER or wait for the next day. Who do you call? We're talking about New York City, and almost no one in the room had someone to call. Now, why is that? Because no doctor can be available 24 by 7. But imagine if you had 21 or 28 doctors, each working one day every three to four weeks. Now you can have someone available on video. It's what we did in the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group. And 70% of the problems we solved. If, the, if your child is lying on the floor listless, I say, get him to the ER right away. I'll call the doctor there. I'll warn him it's likely meningitis. The child's riding the bike around the room smiling. I'll say, go back to sleep and put your kid in bed. I can give you data and information in that time frame that no one doctor can do, getting to the workflow issue you're describing. Or another example, if you're a primary care physician, you're seeing a patient and you don't have quite enough knowledge to be able to make the diagnosis. Video brings that specialist into the room while the patient's there. We did, tele, we tell, did telemedicine uh, digitally for uh, rashes that primary care couldn't handle. And again, 70% of the time, the specialist could make the right diagnosis, the primary care doctor could do the treatment. And I don't know, Sean, if you've gone for dermatology lately, but it's likely six days, six weeks, or six months so you can get an appointment. We solved the issue in six minutes. But all of this requires changing, as you said, the operational flow, the economic division of the income, the relationships, the technology is actually the most straightforward outside of the necessity to share a common electronic health record that makes the care that much better. But it's not that telemedicine is either expensive, hard to use, or hard to access. During the pandemic, it's called Zoom. <laughs> I can't even imagine having a specialist and a GP on, on the same, uh, same call. I don't know. How would you? Why not? I <laughs> well, I can, Why I can envision it. I just don't, I don't find, I don't see a way in any portal that I have access to, to make that happen. You, you won't see it in the same room, probably, unless you're probably the president or the Pope, but. <laughs> Virtually. I mean, just think about it this way. You know, that one dermatologist can support a hundred primary care physicians because no, none of them have a whole lot of patients each day. But when you put the hundred together, that individual can be available to service and help all of them. So again, think of that workflow. Patients in the office seeing primary care. One way you say, call the dermatologist's office, and you have no idea how long it's going to take, whether the care will be in time, what the um, our difficulties will be, accessing the right diagnosis and the right treatment. And the alternative is the primary care physician has the diagnosis, prescribes the medication, 
recommends the treatment, or identifies a high-risk problem, and now calls the dermatologist to explain, this is not a routine problem. I'm very concerned. Think about how much better that quality is and how much less expensive it is to provide that higher quality. That's what we need as a nation. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. Brian, let me let me go back to where you started with the availability and the remote access, because I think when you look back even years ago, the, the first time that we started hearing about telemedicine was to serve remote areas where you couldn't get there physically. But the technology changed really fast. Unfortunately, my feeling and my experience tell me that uh, the, the, the cultural changes take much longer than technology. So as you're looking at all these opportunities, what are the obstacles that doesn't allow cultural changes, bureaucracy, or whatever that is to go at the same pace of technology? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, the example that Dr. Pearl gave on primary care, um, asking or uh, reaching out to a specialty applies obviously for urban and rural. But as you mentioned, telehealth was really based upon rural access difficulties, how it was really funded to begin with. And as we've continued to explore the technology, actually in Utah and some of the other places, our, it still remains a barrier where a lot of places down the southeast corner, for example, the Navajo Nation, they don't have full access to 4G or, or 3G. Some of the places are working, still working on microwaves. So, um, and there are other places in the US like that where because of the terrain, it's very difficult to have full access. Now, given that, there's still a great opportunity to expand um, telehealth. And it's really around that transition of care and those models. So Dr. Pearl mentioned healthcare has been around for a long time, a lot of, and the practices have remained the same. And why is it that people need to see somebody in person when a, a, a video consult provides the same quality of care, I believe, as something in person, especially follow-up care, et cetera, or that second opinion, or maybe that first consult to um, get somebody going and to make sure that they're, again, have access to the right provider and making those quick decisions. At Intermountain Healthcare, we use this type of triage for uh, lower back pain, migraines, et cetera. And, and that has worked very successfully to not only provide a, an answer for the patient, but to free up time for the neurologist to see more complex patients that have been verified, very much like the dermatology example, where you can go through, make that assessment and do a verification. Our standards of care, again, is something that's really important for us. And, and it's one of the challenges, as was talked about earlier, around the workflows. If I see two different doctors, I'll probably get close to the same, but maybe the prescribing is going to be different. And, and if we can get closer standards of care, validated information around um, the most effective and both clinically and cost-effective treatments, then, then everybody's going to be better off. And you can start moving around the country and sharing data a lot better um, when you're confident that within a system, at least, the doctors are all practicing um, close enough. And, and, and I think that's one of the challenges that we still have, putting aside the technology is that care, those care models and getting away a little bit more towards the science than, than the art of, of healthcare in of itself. 
Marco, you raised a really important point, which is that there is a systemic issue that has to be addressed and overcome, including and within that the economics. But there's also a cultural, and I want to point out two aspects, if that's okay, that are cultural. One is why doctors think their office provides better care, a question we started with earlier. And the answer is because culturally, the office adds value, by which I mean culture is the, the beliefs, the norms, the position in the hierarchy. And the doctor's office has the name on the door. It has staff who sees the doctor as being the elevated individuals. We even have waiting rooms which define whose time is more important, the doctor or the patient. It's an elevation of status when you come to my office, and it's a diminution of status when I do the same using virtual care. And the same thing in the specialist area. People often leap to assume it's an economic issue, and that does exist, both in terms of how we bill for telemedicine as well as how we bill for in-person visits. But I think it's more than that. I think it's also that a specialist has an elevated status compared to primary care and providing that expertise is seen as a lowering of that and a flattening of the hierarchy. And we're not conscious of these cultural issues, but if we don't address them, as you said, we'll talk about this forever and little will change. Yeah, this is Brian again. I really like that. Um, one of the opportunities that telehealth has presented to us, and, and I think nationally and internationally, is a broader care team model where it isn't just the physician being the hub, but there's other specialists, other care members that can really benefit the patient in, in evaluating, processing, listening, and caring for those individuals, and then escalating as, a, as, as we go on. Technology will eventually help in some of that as we get into artificial intelligence and contextual information. But I, I do agree fully that the care team model is very, very effective in telehealth, where you can have individual offices or pooled resources to evaluate triage and then move those, those care concerns sort of, quote, quote, up the ladder. But that in itself indicates a hierarchy, right? But if we're saying that then we can escalate those care concerns to other individuals with subspecialties or um, then, then we can do that faster and more efficiently for everybody. Thanks for that, Brian. And you, you're starting to touch on on some scenarios. And, and Dr. Pro, I, I want to go to you because what I'm what I'm thinking. I'm trying to figure out how best to describe this. But I think of experiences that I've had and others around me have had getting care, and it's usually a visit, be it in person or online. Telehealth doesn't matter. A visit, followed by a visit, followed by a visit, followed by a test, followed by analysis, followed by a visit, followed by a call, followed by try this, did it work? Followed, yeah. my, my point is a series of events that hopefully take me down or take the one the, the patient down a track to the end point of, of some resolution of a problem and, and ultimately some good health. And I'm just wondering, it's probably how it was done before. Um, now I can do it faster and I don't have to leave the house. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it's better. So I guess my point is applying the technology to an existing process and a way of thinking and a way of engaging and interacting doesn't make it all better, in my opinion. And I'm just wondering if you have any examples of what could be where 
either some chronic disease or I, I guess what I'm thinking is if all if I I'm a GP or if I'm a specialist and I'm I'm responsible for one part of that train track, right? One one stop along that train track uh, route. Um, I, there's no big picture, right? Here here's a scenario that if if we encounter these three symptoms or attributes of the case, this is a scenario. This is the track. Here are the stops. Here are the people. Versus a, an ever ending. We're going to switch track lanes until we find a, an answer. I'm just wondering, is there a way to think differently here now that we have the technology to accelerate some of this stuff? Absolutely. That's why I use the, the notion that what telemedicine does is eliminate distance and time. So if you look at what you're describing, the routine approaches, you know, take a chronic disease. What do we tell a patient? I'll see you every three months or four months. Why do we do that? Well, because that's about the right amount of time that we have. It's about how often the patient's willing to come to the doctor's office. We could have a lot of reasons, but it makes no logical sense. Things change every day. I may need to see you every month. I might not have to see you for an entire uh, nine months, depending upon how well you're doing. And we don't factor that in because we never had the ability to do that. I could have a very brief visit with a patient every month in less time than it might take to have the individual come to my office every three to four months. I can be monitoring the advances. And of course, if you add to that wearables with AI analyzing data, we could talk about all the different ways to better manage chronic disease. Or using the examples that you said, how many days between each of those doctor's visits did it take? We assume that that's how long it takes. Three days, four days, seven days. It means that you're waiting weeks by the time you have the answer to your problem, and we just accept that as that's what it takes. That's, how, that's why to me, and I wrote the book on caring how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients, because culture says that what we're doing today is the best way. As soon as you step back and you look at it, it doesn't make any sense to, to see patients on a calendar basis rather than a clinical basis. It doesn't make any sense to have you three days, four days, one doctor, next doctor, this problem, that problem. How do we solve it all now and today? A radical concept given the way medicine is structured, but telemedicine along with changing the, the system and the culture would allow that to occur. Yeah, another, if I could jump in, another great example there that we've done with pediatric care is, um, is exactly, again, that model where we have all the specialists get together in a conference room, that patient is actually in other locations, patient and family members. Um, and so one of the big frustrations I think a lot of we've had and to your, to your story was repeating your story over and over and over again, right? You see one specialist, you see the next person, you have to basically start all over again. And that was extremely frustrating for the family, the parents of the children. And so what we, we ended up doing was setting up a, nothing more than a conference call, but having all of those people together and coordinating schedules. So there's the physician there, the surgery there, surgeon, um, dietary, counseling, et cetera. And so everybody could hear each other. They could get one story. And most importantly for the family, they could have one outcome of, of this. And um, that, that has proved to be extremely valuable and very appreciative from the family members. 
Yeah, and Dr. Pearl, I, I remember it was about a year ago when we had that conversation about the book and how the, the culture was a big factor in actually in your title is how, you know, how that culture is actually killing doctor themselves. I, I'm really, I was really touched by, by that conversation. And I probably put the link to, to that podcast actually in the notes for this one, but I'd like to move into some of the example, if, if you, if you could, Dr. Pearl on what are the, what can be done nowadays? Because I feel like there is the culture on the side of the doctors. There is the system that are used to work in a certain way. But I feel like also hasn't been done enough to educate people, the patient, the everyday user, that there is that alternative. I mean, we're all wearing wearables for tracking exercise and dieting and all of that. But where are we, to give an example to our audience, with, with the technology that is available now to have a better care in telehealth? Well, you're asking about various technologies. And to me, let's talk a little bit about the wearables that you mentioned earlier. Okay. Uh, there are so many problems with a technology that has massive potential. Now, what do I mean by that? Well. If you had a wearable that's projecting every blood glucose that you do every day with diabetes, an easy technology that exists today, what doctor wants to receive hundreds and hundreds of blood glucose readings from all the patients? If you had a wearable that would have your heart rhythms measured every hour, who wants to get a thousand heart rhythms the companies that manufacture these devices are trying to communicate how valuable they are. I can find very little evidence that they change medical care. And that's the problem with them today, along with the fact that the companies are not developing the tools with the AI capability to actually monitor, evaluate, advise the patient and then to provide the information to the doctor in a way that is time efficient and clinically relevant. What really should happen is that someone with chronic diseases would be wearing the wearables that would be appropriate for that particular condition and every day would know how well they're doing without having to call the physician. And they may have been seen yesterday, but today everything is different. They better call the doctor and get the care that they need or if everything seems still in line with the direction that the physician recommended, then there's no need to be seen, but there's no company out there right now who's creating that type of device. And so you have a tremendous technological opportunity for which the system, the people, the doctors, the patients are getting very little value coming out of that. You know, another great example, as I said, is people get sick 24 by seven, and we have a system designed from nine to five, or maybe eight to six. We don't have that opportunity to provide that same level of care. And even more than that, if you're in a hospital across a weekend, care slows down, and this time that is so valuable in terms of getting better gets wasted that's why I say the opportunities to me are being so poorly utilized 
Telemedicine should be 30 to 40% of what we do. People with chronic disease should have wearables that AI is looking at, that's educating them about it and able to provide care more quickly. To Sean's point, you shouldn't have to wait days and even weeks between steps in a care process. Telemedicine solves that, but the culture says what we do today is the best that it can be, despite the fact that the data for the Commonwealth Fund says, no, we actually lag the other nations, and we actually have made very little progress over the past two decades. It's an interesting um, paradigm because I think the, the, the you know the U.S. has obviously done a great job in in the high end, the technology, and the advances that we have. And and when you have access to that that healthcare, uh, nothing is better. But the day to day, as was just talked about with chronic disease management, is really the challenge that everybody faces. And I, I do agree that we can have all these meters, these this data coming in, but until you have that a capability of making the information actionable, either for the patient or their the individual care teams, either again through an automated process, prompts, et cetera, or through a direct intervention through um, with people, then then we'll remain struggling with the number of individuals, the costs and and ultimately the exasperations of those conditions that could have been easily prevented um, wait, you know, a long time ago by, by basic technology. I would go a step further though, because I'm less convinced than you are, Brian, that when you're very sick, we give great care. There's a lot of data that says that patients suffer major harm in the hospitals. Uh, there's obviously delays in some of the care. Uh, the outcomes against the dollars don't seem as great as some people might believe that it would be. And I would say that one of the most underutilized tools, or two of them, is data analytics and computer-based algorithms to make sure that every physician is using the most up-to-date, evidence-based approaches to mm -hmm. care. And we see tremendous variation depending upon where a patient might go in the care that's provided and I think there's a, um, uh, an even bigger opportunity in places like hospitals for provi providing the care. But this is going back to what Marco said, the culture. You know, what do doctors love? They love the tools that are cool and that makes doctors look great. A good example for that is the robot used for uh, prostatectomy. There's never been a study that has shown that that technology, which is very expensive and actually slows the doctors down, has increased life expectancy by any significant means. And it certainly has not reduced the complications of the various procedures, including the one for prostate surgery. And yet, when we know that we have tools that can help physicians know in the middle of the night when a patient is likely to be getting into worse problems because all of the complex data coming off of the various monitors indicate that. We don't embrace that. We don't find that particularly interesting. And so we see delays in care, particularly nights and weekends, as patients slowly have problems until it becomes, as you well know, a crisis. And then we intervene very, very quickly. I think as the culture of medicine, we overlook the shortcomings and we overvalue some of the technology that exists in the modern health, health uh, hospital today. I mean, make no mistake about it. Things like CT and MRI have allowed us to peer into the body uh, in ways that we never could have imagined in the past. 
They've made tremendous advances, and we certainly have other opportunities and ways that we can do procedures that we never could before. But we continue to miss the gaps, and that's where I think we have to address both the system and the culture of medicine. Now, you, you said gaps there, Dr. Pearl, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the context of that a little bit because it's, it's in between the sessions, in between the visits, that I'm, I'm wondering if we're kind of missing something there. And maybe it's uh, the day, I, what I'm picturing is some autonomous AI, you mentioned all the alerts or not the, not even the alerts, just the data coming from a wearable and the data coming from uh, from monitors for our heart and, and, and things like that. No doctor wants to see that, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be looking at it and perhaps collectively in whole all the time. Right. And, and so I'm wondering how perhaps maybe what, what the future might look like where there's some, and I don't know, maybe we need people to do it before AI is, is able to, uh, is there a level before doctor that is responsible for looking at uh, all the data from the multiple visits and all the data from the multiple devices and, and the, the data from medications being taken and treatments being given to see how the patient responds to those to see if, if it's in the right direction or not. I, I'm just thinking that there's a huge gap and that's why I honed in on the gap, a huge gap between the big picture and the individual sessions. And uh, just one more point here, maybe to illustrate it even more is just if, if one sees a heart specialist, everything treatment wise is going to be looked at from the heart perspective versus a, a urology versus uh, blood versus, uh, I don't know, pick your favorite lungs or whatever <laughs> that, that thing. So I'm just wondering, there seems to be a lot of gaps, no holistic. And I'm wondering, can, can technology, and I know we're talking a lot about telehealth here, so maybe data through the telehealth system be done differently for a better Absolutely. future? Absolutely. It's going to take a lot of courage. And there's, a, I think, a lot of the companies that make these devices are not willing to take the medical legal or the, the legal consequences that could derive. Because as you know, any piece of technology is never gonna be 100% accurate. And when you're a big company like Apple and something goes wrong a 10th of 1%, you have a lot of market cap that's at risk sitting there. But I'll give you an example because you mentioned the heart. So some patients have problems with the rhythm of the heart. It goes into what's called ventricular tachycardia, which is a uh, potentially and often lethal condition, and they have what's called an implantable defibrillator. So when the heart starts to have a bad rhythm, the device fires, it shocks the heart internally rather than with the paddles on the chest that you see in all the TV shows. Um, this is the one device that by law has to have a repository of information. So every time that device fires, that goes to a central repository. If you look at the practice of how patients get followed in the United States today with an implantable defibrillator, they get seen by the doctor on a calendar basis every three months. Uh, the doctor checks the device out, sees uh, whether it's fired, and tells the patient, hopefully they're doing fine. Uh, we changed that practice in Kaiser Permanente. We saw that every patient once a year, and we told the patient, we'll see you immediately if your device ever fires. Because if it doesn't fire, your heart's doing okay. And if it does fire, you have an immediate problem. It could be tomorrow. And if you have it tomorrow, we don't want to see you in three months. We want to see you tomorrow. But if it doesn't fire, then what are we going to do 
specific to that device. Now imagine if we had that kind of information monitoring patients with all sorts of chronic disease and ongoing medical problems and had the ability to reassure the patient that they were doing well based upon the parameters the doctor created in the evidence-based literature that exists, and also to be able to let us know when the AI application is able to say what's happening to you is outside the parameters that have been set. We'd have a system instead of being episodic that was continuous, we'd have a, I would hope, far better outcome. I mean, look at blood pressure across the United States today, uh, patients with high blood pressure are only brought back into control 55 to 60% of the time. In Kaiser Permanente, we were over 90% because we found ways to be able to monitor that blood pressure on a continuous basis with a lot of the data being entered and analyzed using a combination of technology and lower cost individuals. Those are the opportunities I think that you're alluding to, Sean. And medicine has just scratched the surface for the reason you said earlier in the podcast, which is that it comes down to the systems and the people as much as the technology. Well, I got so many things in my head right now. That <laughs> I, I know I, 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 there is an app for that. Maybe I need to aggregate all my thoughts and then from there have an artificial intelligence to put the, the one more relevant. I know we were talking, we knew that this was not going to be enough time. And uh, I, I think there are so many points uh, through the article that we use as a starting point to, to dig much deeper in. But I will invite you back, uh, both of you, for an in-depth conversation. But I would love to, to wrap this one here, maybe with uh, Brian's opinion on uh, kind of like, Reality versus hope, where do you see or where would you like to see telehealth be 10 years from now? Um, what is stopping it from being eventually what it should be? I think the um, 10 years from now, as, as we've discussed today, the culture needs, culture needs to evolve and change. And I think that will happen. Um, within the next decade, as, as we have new physicians, new care team members coming in, they're going to rely upon not only for themselves personally, but in their practice of, of, of care management with technology and devices, those use cases will continue to expand. Um, from a, a reality to a future hope, um, I think ambient monitoring, the capability of whether these individual devices will be necessary or not to a certain degree, or um, having maybe those smart homes, right, will come to fruition eventually. But behind it all, again, as was mentioned, is the data analytics and being able to accurately predict um, against standards of care, what should happen to those individuals when those measures go outside of the parameters and how severe they are. So as Dr. Pearl mentioned, we are monitoring individuals um, that need it and want it on a 24-7 basis, and we can preemptively help them um, receive the care how they want it, when they need it. I think that's all very viable in the next 10 years. It will be a big stretch for the um, system for healthcare overall, when today we're still wrestling with basic payment and licensing across multiple states and some of the other barriers that are in place. The technology is there. And it's evolving fast enough 
Now the next step is to aggregate this, um, these aspects of it, and to bring them together into a package that can start being able to leverage each other consistently, no matter where the patient's located. Well, the future is bright, and technology certainly will play a role. I think there's no question today we, we pointed out that while you need the technology to move forward, the technology is not the answer. And Marco, you and I talk about that quite a bit. Um, and in this case, we, we've gone very broad in that it, it has to, the culture has to change, right? The, the roles have to change. The process has to change. The workflow has to change. And uh, that that's not just talking to doctors and health systems. I think it's also the culture of the, of the patients as well. What are they comfortable with? Um, sharing, uh, having analyzed, uh, perhaps taking automated treatments in response to uh, potential uh, uh, diagnosis. So uh, I, I think there, there's a lot we could cover here, and I, I hope we can have another conversation to dig in deeper because I, I have many questions on like, well, if, if we're going to get there in the next 10 years, as Brian's describing, who's going to lead that charge and who has to be part of it. And so perhaps we can dig into some of that and some more, some more scenarios in the future on another episode. Um, for now, I'd like to thank you, uh, Dr. Pearl and Brian for, uh, for joining us and, and bringing your insights again for writing that article. Of course, for those listening, we'll, we'll include a link to that article so you can all read that link to uh, the conversation we had with Dr. Pearl about his book earlier and perhaps any other resources that uh, Brian and Dr. Robert uh, Pearl think would be valuable for you to read up on uh, before our next conversation. Thank you, Sean and Marco. Appreciate your having us on the show today. Yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at Devo.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Technology Podcast. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.